Hello and welcome to the Negroni Talks podcast, brought to you from East London and supported by Campari. Set up to be lively, provocative debates on issues around architecture, the Negroni Talks are hosted at the Venetian restaurant Ombre in Hackney and organised by Architects Fourth Space with the assistance of Rob Fain and Bobby Jewell. The talks are designed to emulate the opinionated and convivial free-flowing debates found in the fin de siècle European Café Society, being fuelled by food, drink and particularly Negroni. There's no stage, no standing on ceremony, and the audience are asked to participate as much as invited speakers and the chair for the event. These recordings are presented as they happen live, and like the talks themselves, with no frills and little or no editing, to bring you the arguments of the evening, direct and unfiltered. I do like being amplified. Welcome, everybody, and thank you very much to, for joining us at this, what promises to be a very exciting and interesting chat. And I would very much encourage everybody to get involved. Please feel free to stand up at any stage, like Steve said. Don't feel you have to sit down. It would be great if there's some bustle and hustle going on in the room. However, please don't start talking if you ask a question without a microphone in your hand because, as I understand it, we need to get all of this recorded. My name is Jane Klossick, and I am course leader for MA Architecture and Urbanism at the CAS, School of Architecture, Art, Architecture and Design, over in Oldgate East. On the table in front of you, there are some leaflets for the course that I run, MA Architecture and Urbanism, which we are relaunching this year. So do please take leaflets and pass them on to anybody you know who might be interested in joining us for an activist urban course. That's my little plug. Now I will introduce to you our fantastic all-women panel. Yes, I know, isn't it great? <laughs> I know, I'm delighted. I'm delighted to be chairing an all-women panel. It, it promises to be easier than chairing men who tend not to pick up social cues with quite such accuracy. <laughs> so first of all we have Eleanor Warwick. Eleanor, would you like to stand up or wave or something so everybody can see who you are? Oh, that's fantastic. Thank you. She hasn't said anything yet. Let's not let's not set the bar too high. Like question time when they just applaud after everything. Eleanor was an architect and urban designer, but she is now a researcher. And she worked for CABE for seven years, so she really knows her stuff. And in 2015, she completed a PhD in housing and state regeneration. She's currently authoring a book on defensible space, and she advises the Ministry of Housing and Local Government on that topic. So Eleanor promises to be, and she is in fact a doctor, because she has finished her PhD. I don't know if you like to be addressed as such. Some people do. No, well, it's best not to declare it on your passport in case you're ever on a plane. Tarang Kansari, if you wouldn't mind standing up, and also a round of, round of applause for Tarang. <laughs> Tarang is the co-founder of the Art and Architecture Practice Public Works, and she established that with her partner in 2004. Tarang has lectured at conferences internationally, and she's currently in the process of establishing a course at London Metropolitan University called Design for Cultural Commons, which promises to be a fascinating course on a unique topic. I think it's the first such course 
in the UK or possibly anywhere in the world. So confronting the question of what is the cultural common, commons and how do we design for it. The next person on our panel is Cordula Weisser. Where are you, Cordula? There you are, wearing pink. Cordula is director of Hackney Architects ZCD, who provide architectural design, urban design and research services. She's been teaching for 17 years at universities across the UK, and her key, well, the thing she was particularly keen that I spoke to you about was that she is undertaking a pilot study at De Beauvoir Town, working to make Hackney a child-friendly place, which is a very pleasing task to be undertaking. Her works included exhibition design, urban intervention projects, and projects for art institutions. And finally, we have artists. Where are you sitting? I cannot find you. There you are. Charlotte Cullinan and Janine Richards. And they co-run Cullinan Richards, a collaborative art practice founded in 2006 based on Viner Street. And they've worked together since 1998. The very cool thing that Cullinan, Cullinan Richards undertake is that they run an Italian grocery from their studio on Viner Street at number seven, if anybody likes Italian foodstuffs. And that's where the ham on the table comes from. Uh, yeah. They've been described by Robert Clark of The Guardian as making installations that look like studio art labs. All the media of fine art are touched upon. Painting, sculpture, photography, film, drawing. Yet they tend to be arranged as if in a workshop of cultural inquiry with references to historical contexts and hints of the autobiographical. So I'm going to run this evening as follows. We're going to go for about an hour. I'm going to be quite strict with everybody. Don't go on, because I will stop you. I'm going to propose that the first half is provoked by questions from me. You may speak as audience members in response to some of these questions. You could ask a question or you could make a point. I'm going to ask you to use this code. If you have a question, do this. If you would like to follow somebody's point with an additional, additional point, please do this so that I can tell the difference. And I might ignore you if it's a question if we don't have time. Or did I? Oh, no, I switched it off. For the second half of the... Oh, sorry, I switched it off. I'll turn it round. For the second half of... So for the second half hour, I'd like to invite questions from the audience. And again, the same code will apply. Hand up for a question. Finger up to follow a point that somebody's made. So we're also just going to play it by ear and see how it goes. Because you never know with this kind of thing. So I'm going to kick off with a provocative question, given that quite a significant amount of our panel are architects. And my question is, are architects to blame for gentrification? Would any of our architect panel like to respond to this? Tarang? <laughs> They're looking nervous. Okay. okay, okay, so I've been picked on. Um, I don't, I mean, I don't generally think that the architects are to be blamed for 
gentrification, I think they're symptomatic of what is happening uh, with gentrification, which is ultimately about um, unequal kind of investment on particular bits of land in places which um, have not had investment for a long time, be it ex-industrial places which then need to be rejuvenated and so on and so forth, and architects in a way follow the work that is being created. So I don't think they're to be blamed for it, but ultimately they also don't have so much agency to have a choice right now. And I think in order for architects to start to have more or claim more agency, then they need to become much more innovative in something I feel quite passionately about, which is innovation in practice and interdisciplinary practice to enable new forms of practice rather than kind of still being worried about form. I think we'll definitely have more conversation about the, the agency of architects and the type mm -hmm. of practice in, in later on in this evening. Cordula, what's your take on this question of are architects to blame for gentrification? Well, I think we're uniquely placed to be blamed because we're, we're doing, I mean, like me, probably the others, we, I've been... I've lived and worked in Hackney for the last 18 years, so we are the ones who come in, we, you know, for the obvious reasons, because we can afford the houses, or so classic gentrification, we are reduced by the romanticism of the diverse community, but also we're uniquely placed as in our profession then to be complicit of what, what we are saying, especially, you know, the majority of the profession is sort of a dinosaur age, and still operate on a more just following trends rather than taking agency, as you say. So we often, you know, so we are, but I'd say we even trifold the relationship. And, um, but ultimately, I think we're not responsible because we have so little power. And, and that, you know, we, I suppose we all agree that gentrification is ultimately a good thing. I might not agree. We've got a response from <laughs> but, an audience member who it looks like he believes that architects perhaps are not powerless. Did you have something final to say, Cordial, before really I Just quickly, that ultimately voice. it is about land ownership prices, tenure laws, and lack of rental control, both for residential spaces and workspaces. So we are ultimately the victims at the same time. Did you say, obviously, yeah, it's a hard argument to keep So up. if you could pass the mic to Eleanor before you pass it to this gentleman so that we can... Allow the panel all to have a, a comment on this first. A really first sort of like confessional moment. The reason I stopped being an architect was I, I worked for PTE, I built housing, I did all sorts of things. I got really pissed off about making good architectural solutions to the wrong questions. The wrong question for the city, the wrong question for the people, the communities we're working with. And that's why I moved both into research, into client side, working for sort of first the Peabody Trust and now for Clarence, a huge housing association. However, you end up you end up in a really, really sort of like difficult, sort of much more compromised sort of like situation. So um, I would, in fact, I'd agree with sort of like both of the panelists, both of what you've sort of like said. No, architects don't have the power, but equally the decisions they make about who they work with, how they work with them, is part of is part of the powers and the decisions that they can sort of like make. Charlotte. No, we're not strictly speaking architects. No, absolutely. Speaking. In okay. fact, that is interesting. It'll be interesting to hear from. And it's kind of. Are you not strictly speaking architects, or are you? No, no. Not it's, architects it's probably at all. a bit of a sham that we're here at all. Um, we had one thing that we wanted to say, but it probably doesn't entirely answer your question or address your question. Yeah. 
Okay, so Janine's saying that we're not going to tell you what we need. We were going to tell you. So we're going to pass on this one. Oh. <laughs> How exciting. One of the audience members have no says, opinion whatsoever. Do you have an opinion? <laughs> <laughs> not right now. Ah, interesting. I'd say no. So I would I'd like say no, to... I don't think they are to blame. You don't think they are to blame? Excellent. Well, that was lovely. Thanks very much. And uh, I'll see you next week. Um, <laughs> sir, you looked like you had a comment on the question of the power of architects. Yeah, I think it's interesting. I think these are all amazing comments. But I've been a architect not practicing, moving into a neighborhood in New York, which was one of th once the most beautiful parts of uh, Manhattan, and then went into poverty, Harlem. And I was probably one of the first people to move in, paying four times what my neighbor was paying, for no change at all inside, I mean, on the outside of the building. If the outside was regulated, you couldn't change it. All that happened was that I had a new interior. That's one part of it. And I live in Oxford now, and I look at a neighborhood called Jericho, which is built for canal workers, for people digging up the canals in the 19th century. Those buildings don't have a damp-proof course. They don't have a concrete plinth. They are about the most abysmal buildings you could possibly find. They should be demolished. They sell for about 600 to 750,000 pounds. That's very reasonable. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> yes. So this part about this one part where it's former industrial areas where people are moving into and so on. So the inequities, the inequalities of investment, and the other is something that happens across history. But our architects powerless? I'm not so sure, because uh, this year's Jane Drew Award winner commented str very strongly about the relationship of architects uh, you know, to their clients. We have gone into, I, I have to excuse myself from this, I'm not a practicing architect, but architects have gone into this adversarial relationship with clients. They, are, they have, uh, according to Amanda Levitt, she's, the architects have abdicated their role to project managers. So the minute you are in a contractual relationship, um, the power is, was yours to give away. The power, power was ours to give away, and we did. So could we have could, it back? Could I it's just ask so everybody in this room who is an architect to raise their hand, just for interest? Half a hand. And... I'd be very interested to have any other, the other architects take on the question of your agency and power. What's your experience of that? Hi, um, I um, uh, well, live locally, but I left architecture, and I think I probably left it because of a lack of agency and uh, having children. And architecture does not work, I think, around um, childcare quite often. Um, so I moved into um, other roles within the construction industry. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I, can, I think that, it, which might have more agency, possibly. Um, but, yeah, there's certainly, um, you know, a, a, a correlation between, you know, uh, what, what you do and, and doing it for someone else, you know. I mean, at the end of the day... Uh, there are bigger forces in, involved with it. Absolutely. But I am only half an architect yeah. now. So. Well, to, br to bring this conversation, uh, a thing I neglected to say at the beginning, but I think is quite important, 
is that this in specific is a conversation as much as we can about this place, about Viner Street, about Hackney. Because I think that, sorry, say that again. Tower Hamlets. Sorry, Tower Hamlets. We are right on the border, aren't we, of, of Tower Hamlets and Hackney. Are we in Tower Hamlets right here, not Hackney? Ah. Well, one of the significant things about all of our panel, panel members is that they are all living and working in Tower Hamlets and Hackney, and I too live in Tower Hamlets. And I think it's important to note, possibly if looking around the room also, the age of most of the people in this room, probably pe the majority of people in here have no recollection of Viner Street being a place of manufacturing. Does anybody remember that? A handful of people. So I'd like to introduce in the corner over there my dad. <laughs> Who, <laughs> thanks. And I wonder no. if you could just give us a... A one-minute description of your yeah. recollection of Viner Street from the 1970s. Oh, I, I mean, Viner Street, because I used to work here, because um, I used to design shoes. Um, and uh, this area used to be full of small manufacturers, small local shoe uh, manufacturers, etc. Um, and it's really vastly changed. I mean, the fact that now the galleries, I mean, because I'm now a practicing artist, so it sort of surprises me. Um, and yes, it's so totally different. The only thing that sort of has a reminiscence for me is the pub down the road, the Victoria, um, because we used to go in there quite often. And, that, and in fact, when I arrived here, I had to have a circle round to sort of, because the buildings haven't changed. As you said, somebody said earlier, it's the interiors that have probably changed, you know, and they're all, um, but it was a very, very um, sort of working class area, and local people worked in the factories and they lived locally. Um, and uh, it was quite rough. Would anyone else who remembers it from, from longer than 10 to 15 years ago like to make a comment about their recollections? No? Yeah. Go, Steve. This place used to be boarded up and selling little plastic bottles with no branding on them. And the guy who worked here wore a brown jacket like David Jason from Open All Hours. And um, it was a forgotten street. However, there was already people, um, and I'm not blaming them for gentrification, but I'm going to pass on to Charlotte here, who knows a lot more about the area than I do. I think also this, this building used to be part of um, a military sub-aqua yeah, is that the same? Yeah, military. It was an yeah. underwater research establishment. They used to make. Yeah, they used to actually make the um, subaqua military hardware, basically, didn't they? So they manufactured it and researched about it in this in this I don't building. think they did any research. No. Oh. <laughs> Sorry, they, I you said they were li they were literally uh, yeah. Um, it was a factory for making. Subaqua military equipment. And have you been here in your studio since 1998? Well, we moved to the area when uh, squatting laws changed in 1985. And we moved from Wayson Street to Viner Street in 1999. Yep. So did you have any more detailed description that you'd like to share of this, the, the nature of the change that you've observed? Which is going to bring us on in a moment to my asking the panel the next question, which is... 
We're all bandying around this term gentrification willy-nilly, but what does it actually mean? I don't think it means a lot for Viner Street, to be honest. Um, but uh, as artists, we felt like it was uh, our duty to do a bit of research before we came here this evening. Um, and under the definition of uh, gentrification, we found quite an interesting um, uh, part of the Wikipedia. We like Wikipedia. Um, and it's a, a piece, um, it's, it's written about the, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, CDC. Um, and it's the leading national public health institute of the United States. The CDC is a United States federal agency under the Department of Health and Human Services and is headquartered in Atlanta, Georgia. In the US, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention report titled Health Effects of Gentrification defines the real estate concept of gentrification as the transformation of neighborhoods from low value to high value. This change has the potential to cause displacement of long-time residents and businesses. When long-time or original neighborhood residents move from a gentrified area because of high rents, mortgages, and property taxes, gentrification is a housing, economic, and health issue that affects the community's history and culture and reduces social capital. Often shifting a neighborhood's characteristics, e.g. racial, ethnic composition and household income. So perhaps we need to be looking at gentrification as a disease and a health hazard. Focusing national attention on developing and applying disease control and prevention. And in terms of environmental health, as the branch of public health concerned with all aspects of the natural and built environment affecting human health. So it's a disease. Well, we could look at it like that, couldn't we? Because then we might have some power, because we might be able to prevent disease prevention and also... Uh... As an analogy, as an analogy, a disease is an interesting choice because, of course, a disease is usually caused when an external agent infects something and starts to multiply. So it's a useful analogy, perhaps. It's, and quite, it's quite interesting this is coming yes. out of America, isn't it? Well, it's coming out of Wikipedia. <laughs> uh, well, the CDC Not probably does exist. Yes, no, absolutely. But, um, but the fact that they're putting the Centre for Disease Control and Prevention into this kind of idea yes. of trying to prevent gentrification or somehow yes. make gentrification... I'm intrigued by the idea plus. that gentrification reduces social capital. Is everybody familiar with the term social capital? It's sort of, yeah, you probably all are, but just in case you're not, it means your level of education and your access to power, essentially. So the things that are just in, innate to you that give you the capacity to have power in society are social capital. That's your social capital, your level of education and so forth. So I'm intrigued by the notion that gentrification would reduce social capital. I don't really understand how that could work. Like, is it in, in place? I mean... Well, have also, you, before not, you, uh, have yeah. you got specifically an answer to that, or should we move on but to there, another there panel? There are other definitions of social capital. Sorry, just Go on. There. Maybe I've got an inappropriate the, definition. Please yeah, do correct me. Yeah, I me. think that there maybe are different definitions of social capital, because the other is really about relationships. Social capital is about relationships between people and how you that can kind of empower and give agency so so in that sense i think it does because it uproots it displaces so displaces kind of communities which 
which would have built social capital so over time. Talking so specifically about this place, or, or indeed Tarangi's work is in Roman Road, yeah. could you talk about your understanding of what gentrification means? Yeah, so I mean, I, um, so on the Roman Road, I'm actually working with kind of someone who quite a few people in here know. Um, so Tabitha uh, State Police set up, or with a lot of their neighbors set up the Roman Road Trust, which is a community group uh, in the Roman Road, near the Roman Road market. And I kind of knew quite early on that we're not gonna stop gentrification. You know, you, it's, it's a kind of, it's a, it's a wave that you can't really stop, but what you can do is create gaps or holes within it. And that could happen through land ownership. So in a way, what we tried to do was to build social capital in series of sites, uh, which are publicly owned, um, and then try to grab that land, which is what I'm doing with my practice now as an architect. I try to grab public land for public benefit. And, and to and bring that, you back to the question, you said yeah. you can't stop gentrification, but what is it that you can't stop? I think this kind of t enclosure of land for high investment and capital that benefits a few rather than, rather than uh, equally shared, which is also what my MA is about, <laughs> the commons, <laughs> is about sharing and, and kind of equality and how you set up systems which that kind of enables that to happen because ultimately then you're going to have much more healthier environments rather than environments which are high in deprivation and, um, and then high in wealth. And you have these divisions which then creates insecurity, creates issues and, and so on. So they don't particularly generate great neighborhoods. So it's, it's about the parceling up of land and then the, the valuing of that land as well, I think a it's, high value. It's trying to, if you try to equalize land, you know, access to land, um, then rather than just enabling those who can afford it to, to buy it, then in that sense you, you start to kind of create these kind of equalities. Mm. And, and a lot of the, the land we have is either local authority or we're, we're, we're getting access to local authority or housing association. Yeah, well, we're going to come back yeah. to the more specific means of achieving this yeah. in a later question. But Cordula, I will, is this a question or a point? Is it a finger or a hand? Question, question. A question for Tarang? Or for everybody. Well, save your slightly broader question for the slightly broader question section, which is the second half. And we will come back to you shortly. Cordula. What's what is gentrification anyway? Uh, because we all use the term freely, and we sort of assume that there's a shared definition, but I would like to clarify whether there is. I, th I think I share um, Taranja's definition. It's... Um, if you don't have anything more to say, yeah, you can no, just say that and, but and pass to Eleanor if you have something, if you're, but if you have something also pressing, do go. Yeah. Eleanor, you've been looking like you're desperate to speak on this topic. What, what I'm really interested is um, gentrification, I think it's a really global effect and I think what's quite a useful test is to take the definition which is about change in value, change in sort of like experience, and apply it to all the different types of gentrification that I think we're also like really aware of. So, you know, thinking about Ruth Glass's, you know, her, her pioneer renovators, 
you know, how they, that sort of like started out to, you know, super gentrification in Chelsea. You know, it's still some people aren't able to sort of pull things sort of like there. Hipster gentrification, we were talking earlier about sort of like some of the impacts there, how the changes are sort of like happening there. Things like office to resi, which is gentrification by stealth. We haven't actually noticed that it's sort of like really happening. State-led gentrification, all the sort of like the estates being sort of like intensified, densified, the only way that you can pay for, for refurbishment and renovation and um, sort of like regeneration programs is through trying to get mixed and balanced communities. So I think, I think what's really useful is we need to go back to what those outcomes are. Are they, are they, are they trying to get mixed and balanced communities? Is it about trying to stop displacement? Sort of social sort of like cleansing. So there's there's something in the definition that you had which was about about change, and there was something also which was about like relative difference. And I think um, I think I'd argue that there isn't one definition of gentrification. There's lots of different definitions of gentrification, and they need to be addressed or resisted or even encouraged. In I wonder, ways. could you talk specifically about Viner Street? And Tower Hamlets well, Hackney rather, in rather, these towns. Rather than Vine Street, um, if I can talk about maybe Broad, Broadway Market, which, Broadway is, Market, which is where yes. I moved in. I'm waving at my neighbour, Paula. There you go. <laughs> um, um, when I moved into Broadway Market, um, there were cobbles. And there was a grocer shop which had one of those ham machines, which were and had ham, which sort of like, looked like this. And what has been most interesting is the cobbles went, the grocer went, but now sort of, you know, 20 odd years later, you can now get, there are now other shops with sort of like machines which they'll sort of like hand there. So, so I think there's something about the particularity, but I think there's something about waves and cycles and what some of those sort of like detailed, detailed changes sort of like are. Could you describe what that cycle is as you've observed in quite sim <sighs> simple terms, just so that everybody can understand what you some mean? Of, some of, okay. Um, a lack of... The change in the streets, the change in the street in Broadway Market was it was it was really varied and really sporadic. Peter Barber, the architect, built a funny little house and used to sort of like have entertaining events there. There was a guy who used to make really bizarre hats and somehow could make a living there. There were sort of like potters. There was equally um, a really grotty carpet shop and then this amazing grocer's where you could buy sort of like a bucket of sort of cornflakes and, and ham and chunks of cheese. Um, and as well as some really sort of like practical things. The change in the shops, not necessarily the market, seemed to have been, you know, a, a, a samification. You know, how many cups of coffee does somebody need as they sort of like walk down? Um, yes, you can buy ham, but it's not the ham that you'd eat for your tea, sort of like most nights. It's sort of, you know, special occasion ham. Um, and... And it feels, it feels like a lot of the entertaining and interesting things have got pushed to the edges. You know, they've got pushed to the side. They've got pushed to the, the news. So it feels as if Broadway Market in particular has gone from being a place of sort of surprise and entertainment to a bit more predictability. Thank you very much. And there was a point over here. But before I go to your point... Everybody's very... Oh, there's another point behind. Sorry, I didn't see you. So there's two points over there. Before, well, pass it along. But also, everybody's very still. And do feel free to get up and drink. I believe, I believe that's at least part of the purpose of this evening. So we had a point Hi. from the lady at the back and another point from the lady in, in uh, white. Sorry, woman. I don't know what came over me then. 
She's a lady. It's, it's the frilly shirt. Um, just actually going back a little bit to the point about whether architects are to blame for gentrification. Um, I've been working and living in Shoreditch Mall, or Bedford, kind of Brick Lane, for what, well, I used to have a space there, as some people do, and I would say actually maybe architects do have a bit to blame for the gentrification, because weren't we all the ones that moved into this area and started off the gentrification? process in a way because that's what's attracted all the developers later on to uh, come in and now we're a bit upset because actually it's not as much fun as it used to be. Yes well it strikes me that there's more than one way in which architects could be considered to blame. There's the, the know, process of actually know, occupying the space and then there's the power or otherwise that architects have as the makers of cities or at least as part of city making. Uniquely placed indeed. Um, the woman in the white shirt, you had something, a comment on the, on the, the topic of what is gentrification. It was about the cycles that yes. Eleanor mentioned in terms of Broadway market. But to be fair, Eleanor kind of went on to elaborate um, because my point was going to be that whilst, yes, Broadway market went through a process of uh, losing independent traders and uh, techniques and then regaining that, the, the regaining of it has been a sort of fetishization of that past working class culture. And I think to what extent is this like, oh, brilliant, we're seeing a resurgence of manufacture and independent uh, businesses in, in East London, that's fantastic. Yeah, well, you know, if it's ridiculously expensive products that only the elite can afford, then is that really a good thing? Uh, sorry, that was a question. It's not a question, it's a rhetorical question. It's a good question, and we will come back to it. So, over here, would you mind passing the um, microphone phone all the way into this corner? Thank you. Um, yes, it was just um, <clears throat> commenting on the point of what does gentrification look like, and the whole... I think what hasn't been mentioned is commodification. And I think particularly thinking about Broadway market. And I remember, I can't remember how many years ago, it was quite a few years ago, thinking at one point, oh, I can actually buy not only milk and pizzas on Broadway market, but I can buy presents. And then there was a point where you could buy books uh, of course, books could be presents, but there were sort of a range of things that you could suddenly buy that made this feel like a street, a high, small sort of high street. And then when the market sort of really took off, so that sort of commodification of, of the place into becoming something more, the brand and the, and, and then, and that, for me, was the, the point where it's sort of the tipping point. And I think you see that in lots of places, and that's where Roman Road is interesting, because it's very, I, well, I can't imagine it ever being like that, because it's got such different characteristics. Its whole sort of geography makes it almost impossible for it to have those conditions. How, how would you define the difference in terms of its geography and its spatial characteristics? Well, well one, it's a cul-de-sac. <laughs> so you don't have that through. It's not a place that leads to anywhere. You know, whereas 
Broadway market, there's a, you know, one end you've got London Fields, and then you go all the way back Columbia Road and, and Brick Lane, and there's that sort of route, which now has become a sort of, the whole route is a sort of celebration of expensive things that you can only buy on a Sunday when shops are open. And uh, whereas, whereas Roman Road has uh, still very particular everyday shops, you know, and, and, and the market is, you know, struck. Hang on a second. Don't don't speak with that microphone. And <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and, and I, I suppose that's right. the sort of length of the road and the yes. So you're saying there's something quite particular about the spatial characteristics of a place which make it more prone to gentrification, and it might be say the vernacular Victorian street pattern as opposed to a more modernist housing estate street pattern, perhaps. Oh. Yes. <laughs> I was just going to add to the, I think it's interesting what's going to happen, or is at the moment happening, that gentrification is eating its children in a way, because a lot of the, even now, Broadway market tenants, or us being a nettle house, can't afford the rents anymore, so Ellery, a Michelin star restaurant, is now moving to Shoreditch, because they can't afford Broadway market prices. The gentleman here has been waiting for a while. I'm sorry, I'm that terrier that's not going to let go. Why aren't architects talking about the abdication of power? And we surely will. one of the first characteristics of gentrification is displacement of people who want to continue living where they, where they used to live, can't afford it anymore. And so my move to Harlem, near, really cool neighborhood, musicians, artists, etc., etc. I lead the charge. Soon there are 10 of us on that block, and those people can't be there anymore. And suddenly it's not a cool place to live. Suddenly it's a banker's you know, colony. So why, amongst the architects here, amongst the panelists here, is there no, I mean, why wouldn't you address the idea of political power? I mean, cities are social, they're cultural, but they're economic and political. And policy, both by the national and city government, is fundamental. We've we are lost definitely our going to come back to policy. Don't worry. <laughs> Absolutely. Can I just say, I, I think, um, I mean, it's also a discussion about class struggle with, uh, with gentrification. Uh, and I think, you know, displacement is definitely part of that. But, but I think it's kind of really important to, you know, in a way, um, what that lady was saying about Brick Lane. I mean, I moved to Stratford 15 years ago because I actually could not afford to live in South London. So, so I suppose it's when you move to a place, what kind of ethical position do you also think you have to a place rather than just consuming? Do you also give back or do you also kind of create conditions with which that displacement does not happen? Which so is would what you, you'd make the argument that as, as a person moving into a place, either as a resident or as a business owner, you have a responsibility to the place? I think so. I would be very curious before we carry on, and I have in mind people who's, who've got their fingers up. I would be very curious, anybody who raised their hand who considers that they are not part of gentrification? Interesting. Two people here consider they're not part of gentrification. Um, probably people... So, um, Just one second. Um, so I'm not an architect or an artist. Yeah. And uh, I've been in East London for 30 years. And it was only probably when I sent my children to the Gatehouse School, which is a private school, that I actually became aware of any artists or 
architects because most of the parents were artists and, and architects. what do you do for a living? Uh, well, interest. I'm currently a developer, actually. <laughs> I'm not actually a developer, but I'm doing some development at the moment. And um, so, so, yeah, do I feel I'm part of gentrification? No, not at all. And I think it's also important to understand that actually Hackney in particular was extremely gentrified in the first place before it was actually um, market gardens and then it was built on beautiful Victorian or Georgian houses, a few examples still left like the Lansdowne Club uh, and then these were owned by extremely wealthy merchants. Um, the whole of the Mile End Road, you see the houses which are there owned by admirals and captains of the fleet that could look out from the tops of their houses down to the docks and see their ships sail. So the idea that somehow we've gentrified this area suddenly is rubbish. You know, it actually, it was gentrified in the first place. Then it was built on uh, increasingly. And then the doldrums came. Everybody moved out and left it out. And I, as I say, I've been here for 30 years. My, most, my, my memory of... I, I moved here because it was cheap. I was a student, couldn't afford anywhere else. I liked Victoria Park. I used to row, rowing for the... Is, is that not the definition of gentrification? What? That Rowing? somebody who is well-educated with quite high levels of social capital moves somewhere because it's cheap. And well, I then don't more know, people, is it? Yes, I think oh, it is. Is it? I, am I, I, it roughly. Roughly, that's... Uh, can I... Um, I mean, if... It, yeah, sure. I mean... The, uh, Surely people who are highly educated... That's rubbish. I couldn't afford anywhere else, so I moved here. I'll rephrase it. I couldn't afford anywhere else, so I lived here because it's what I could afford. And uh, they also used to have a very good rowing club, Lee Rowing Club, which has since gone downhill. And at that rowing club were um, everybody, you know, plasterers, plumbers, electricians. Uh, you know, there was no one from any public schools. Incidentally, I went to comprehensive school just before you um, <laughs> make any assertions as my background. And, um, you know, so, so, you know... Please don't my, feel attacked. I'm no, not no, I'm not going you. to. Don't worry, I wore the pink shirt especially. <laughs> and... Um, so, actually, my memory of 30 years ago moving here as a student and being able to afford to live here, the only place I could afford to live, was actually that you know, most of the shops were boarded up. Um, there were bodies floating around in the, in the canals. You know, you'd row along the canal. You'd actually pick them up on the end of your oar and stuff like this. So, it wasn't a particularly pleasant place to live. But the main reason I've stayed here is because I've got, you know, got to meet a lot of friends here. None of them are artists, none of them are um, architects. It's bollocks that, to believe that it's gentrified because of them. You know, there were actually some decent people living and they still live here and, and they have nothing to do with those industries whatsoever. So, you know, I'm being devil's advocate here. You know, everyone's welcome, of course, but, you know, actually, you know, I've been here 30 years and I love it and I still love it. Well, if we could just hear, <laughs> I'd love to hear from... Oh, uh, sorry, just quickly, um, uh, as my, uh, you know, I've been here for 20 years, but my family have a history going back to Shoreditch, you know, 100 years, and going back to Bethnal Green, 300 years, and we're definitely cyclical as a, as a family, you know, we've gone from uh, Hofnickel Street, which was cleared in the first um, public housing scheme in this country, possibly the world, I don't know, um, moved out to um, East London, and then I've moved back, yes, with an education. Um, cities are migrant objects, okay? They really are. And if you say that one group, um, 
lack the right to stay there, then you question every group, okay? And they have, it has to be mixed. And when you get these monogamous cultures, that's the wrong word. <laughs> it's, it, it's, you know, homogeneous oh, cultures. Oh, sorry, that's of course. It, it's, 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 you know, it's difficult and dangerous. And we moved briefly to a place where that existed, uh, you know, for a few decades uh, in the suburbs. And that's really crap, I can tell you from, you know, personal experience. Um, well, so I that's think it. I, I yeah. don't know the dem demographic qualities of Tower Hamlets and, and Hackney. Maybe one of our panel members does. It would be interesting to know what are the, what are the demographic qualities of these boroughs in terms of income and education levels. Does anybody know? Because what gentrification often looks like is that the surface has changed dramatically, but the underneath is still the same. Do you know? Um, I don't know, but I can point people to some really interesting research by a guy called Tim Butler. Um, and he's, he's, he does middle-class gentrification in London and Paris. How's that for a job? Really, really nice. Um, and he, he really interestingly spent a lot of time looking at East London, looking at Victoria Park. Um, this was starting in the, sort of like the 80s and the 90s and the early sort of like 2000s. And what he started to recognise was... Whereas the classic thing about house prices being dictated to by schools and school catchment areas, have a good school, expensive places around, that actually in London, and particularly in East London, that was being turned on its head a bit. That what was actually happening was people were starting to sort of like move to places they could afford to move to, and then you could start to predict a few years down the line where were the school? Where, where, were, where were people going to, you know, whether they could get their kids to go? Where and that this wasn't actually just a class effect. It actually was a, an ethnic sort of like effect as, as well. So ethnic minorities who were interested in their kids' education had that same bit of, of where, you know, where am I going to live? What is it about the characteristics of where I live? I want where I live and where my kids are going to live and grow up and go to school to be a sort of like a good place. Um, and so I think that's a really interesting sort of flip of of the perceived wisdom about what what follows what in terms of in terms of you know house prices or education or sort of like investments of in an area we this question of what is gentrification has proved to be much more fruitful than i'd anticipated and there was a couple of audience members who were waiting for a long time to make a point did you want an answer to the in in depth of deprivation yes very much I, I can only remember this recently i i think that hackney and tower hamlets were in the kind of top three yes that's in the what country, I, I thought. and that hackney has dropped so but is tower in fact gentrification in part to do with somebody mentioned relative I, relative I think there may relationships be between poverty and wealth statistics like and i i was talking to cordra about this today there might i think it might be the average house price in hackney is now hit a million pounds or something awful like that so it's pretty polarised as a borough. Yeah. It has become more polarised. So who had their finger up audience-wise? Can you just re-finger, please? Because I don't remember. This gentleman in green has been waiting very patiently for an extremely long time. Oh, well, I'm not sure a lot of uh, observations by now. Um, but first of all, I just wanted to respond about architects. Uh, maybe we should clarify that uh, architects are human beings and then they operate professionally within a practice. So, you know, we, we also may suffer by the consequences of our own actions sometimes. But Are you when an we, architect? I am an architect, yes. 
when we operate when we operate professionally and I'm simplifying extremely here we do respond to a brief so we try to seek projects and then somebody gives us the project and then there's a, a definition of what we need to do and we try to do in most cases at the best of we can then we also have another role and which is as cultural operators so we can talk and write and discuss about values in society. And so that's where I find that we can have more weight. But that weight is still cultural. And, uh, you know, and so it goes to change things as far as books and exhibitions change things, not you know, in the depth of societies. Only, they only talk to people they are discerning enough to receive the message. Charlotte and Janine, do you think that artists have a similar role? As, as, the, as people who play a role in defining what's cool and interesting, which is, I think, what you just said. <laughs> Influencing, Influencing culture. culture. Yeah. yeah, I mean, like the, only, the only blame, yeah. if I may say, and then I, and I finish um, uh, quickly, is that uh, um, somehow brave people amongst them, they're also architects and artists, have been uh, understanding simple things and poorer things before other people. And so they've been living in conditions that were very nice and that, that's all we are romanticizing about, oh, the past and the before there was a, a kind of an, an authentic shop. There's some kind of uh, perceived truth and a sense of community. And so somehow, artists moved where they could afford to move and live and made the best environment around them. The, the perversion of what we're talking about is that some people, and, and also I'm generalizing here, developers, so you know, no, no, you know, no, nothing personal, but they've understood that. And so they go and uh, add that value or exploit the value where artists have been pioneers and, uh, and so the only discomfort I see in all this discussion is that when things improve, and I say that with you know, in inverted commas, uh, because that's, you know, everybody has an opinion on what improves, then the cost of living increases. So all we're talking about is when things are done to an area, and that has happened from Roman times to nowadays, you know, it's always happened, then there's I'd always, like to add something to that when you... There's always um, the discomfort of people they can't afford anymore to live in that area. That's what I see is the kind of the, the, the spot. Thank you. So who owns and determines yeah. that cost? If you, if, I'd be very interested to hear from... Um, I, I, I think it's a bit... I don't think that artists are pioneers when they go into a particular area. I think artists tend to just follow each other like anybody else. So just so happened that, you know, there's groups of artists that live in an area and maybe it's something to do with the nature of what they're doing that um, it's 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 quite public. It's about it's about sharing something publicly like architecture is about engaging with your environment and so therefore there's something in that 
interaction that 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 follow change follows. I don't know, but maybe artists need to be more aware of what 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 happens when they do all move or gather or happen to be in an area together, and that it's really important to be engaged in local politics and engaged in all kinds of other conversations as well. Is, is that a process that you have personally made a deliberate effort to engage in? The ethical yeah. questions of your presence and how have you done that? Um, I, I mean, not, not so much consciously, not in, in, in that way, but um, I think recently we have felt that it was really, really important to engage in local politics much more, to have, you know, go to meetings and be at the table and have discussions and try to um, uh, make, an, make an effort in, in a way that, you know, perhaps is not particularly exciting. It, it, meetings are quite boring, but it's, it's important to be there and important to say... There's nothing to think. force you to do it, though, is there? No, this is the thing. I think we're all choice. talking about ethical questions. And in a minute, we're going to move on to mechanisms that, that force people to do the right thing instead of just hoping that they'll do the right thing. Um, but before we do, I'm going to call on the other two panel members, Tarangjan and Cordula, who have had their fingers up for some time. And after that, Steve has something brief to say, although now he's looking at his phone. And then I'm going to open up the floor to questions from the audience, because I think this question of what is gentrification has been really fruitful, but I think it would be interesting to hear questions from the audience to Rangish. Yeah. I mean, I just want to, um, I think something Paula said, um, which is really interesting, because in a way, when you start to also have social mobility in areas where actually, um, you know, different you know, there is kind of elevation in... If possible, can you talk particularly rather than a general way? Well, okay, so on the Roman road, for example, there is uh, a local family who are from, if you have to label, from a kind of English working class background, very East End, they've lived there for all their life, you know, uh, their family came from there and so on. And then they, I mean... Ironically, the, the, the cafe just closed, but they then started to build on that, what was happening with the new wave of people who were coming there and had started a kind of cafe, which was very successful, Chesterfield, but now they've closed. Um, so, so, yeah, replaced by, so, okay. But anyway, for, for, as, I mean, it, it, for as long as it lasted, which was about five years, I spoke to them quite regularly about it. And so... I think, I think one can't be so black and white about these things as well because, you know, who are you displacing? How is that displacement happening? And I think you're going into that in terms of policy. But also not forgetting that, you know, I think education in architecture has a lot to kind of be, <laughs> be blamed for. And in many ways, there are lots of kind of important bits but they're also it's a bit stuck like a dinosaur so it also needs to kind of become much more innovative in terms of practice but also uh, in sense of you know I know students who are who had to go into prostitution to pay for that so it's not as if you know they're all bloody brilliant wealthy kind of people so I think we have to be very careful about these binaries 
um, and these what's right and wrong and you know these so so I think it's a very complex and it has to be specific to areas so yeah Cord Cordula did you have a, a comment on I want to following say that two things before that I read this um, um, study that Glenwell carried out that Hackney are much more or extremely happy with where they live and feel at home and something like really high up in the London boroughs, which is interesting, as like, even as, as the diversity all groups were all asked and there was a high level of happiness. And I was going to say something about the schools because I think if one community building institutions are schools, and I think you're absolutely right, schools have increased, but now there's a new trend that people do take their children out and I really strongly believe in the social contract we all have to all send our children to the same schools to kind of mix and maybe push or elevate or the opposite and I think it's um, interesting that more and more architects and artists you were saying for example are taking the kids out of state schools which is so Steve briefly you had your can you? Does it, is there not something recording? But do they not get involved in changing the area in the sense that they occupy it? But do they not, by their very presence, shape the environment? I mean, I, I'm sorry, we're going to move on in a moment to questions. And I, because I optimistically... Sorry, what do you say? So most of the artists, I'd imagine most people who, who live in Hackney have done very well out of property, who own, who own property, obviously. That's a, that's a huge discrepancy. So to bring this back, ideally, to the question of architects and their guilt or otherwise, if you have a question or a provocative statement that you'd like the panel to respond to, could you please raise your hand? So I've got two. If anybody else has got one, put your hand up now, because otherwise I'm going to not speak to you later. <laughs> so one over there. One here. Yes? One here, one here, and one here. So that's five. According to my timing, we still have nine minutes. But uh, I'm getting the feeling this is quite fun and spicy. Please do stand up and get a drink or go to the toilet if you need to. So let's go from that way across, starting with the person in the back. Who was that? Please raise your hand again. There you go, sir, please. Would somebody pass him a microphone? Thank you. Hi. Urban Dance student studying in Atlanta, Georgia. I, have, I was working on 
project in that microphone is turning on and off. Maybe you could shout. Sorry, yeah. So I'm a operating student from Atlanta, Georgia, and I was working on a project in Atlanta. And I was approached by a person, uh, like a random person on, on the street that uh, said, like, and we were working on a project that, like, that dealt with urbanism. So uh, like, he said tactical urbanism is the start of gentrification. So the panel or everybody, like whoever is interested, what do you think about So you'd like the panel to respond to the question, is tactical urbanism the start, the start of, gentrification? of gentrification? Yeah. Could you define tactical urbanism? So uh, like low cost or like less time consuming uh, interventions in, on streets or, on, or in, in an urban area that, that changes the, the characteristics or the quality of the street. So when somebody makes an intervention in an area, would you count, for example, a market trader setting up a market stall as a piece uh, of tactical urbanism, or is it something that somebody does from a particular part of society? I would say it's a, it's a low-cost intervention, so it can be a pop-up lemonade stand or a pop-up, uh, let's say, a, a lamp, lamp market or something like that. Okay, so, great. Or even, even like just painting the streets in, a, in, in green colour for a day. <laughs> I'm going to suggest that we hear all the questions first, and then the panel can have time to think, and also the audience can have time to think. So, madam, if you wouldn't... Oh, was there one over in that corner as well? I don't recall you putting your hand up. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it's being a bit strict there. It's the microphone. Go on, go ahead with your... Or you can use this microphone if you like. Okay, I'm, I've been really interested in hearing everything that everyone's got to say. Um, and two things that have kind of particularly struck me is that nobody's mentioned the digital age at all. That hasn't, that hasn't been raised at all. And nobody's mentioned as well the speed, because of course the two go hand in hand, and the speed in which things have been developed. And also nobody has mentioned one of the peculiarities, tendencies in the whole of the kind of the British Isles where we don't often, I, I think, as, as, a, as a kind of nation, perhaps as a whole, and it, as everything always is, it's a strength and a weakness, but we don't tend to sort of hang on to cultural sort of entities. We don't take often pride in areas. We're quite, we're subject to change. Could you frame one or all of those things as a question? <laughs> I, I just, I, you said to be provocative. I just yes, wanted yes, to, no, absolutely. I just, well, in I that just case, wanted to make phrase them... one or all of those things as a provocative statement. Okay, all right, to be really provocative. Yeah, all right, then. as provocative um, as you can while artists, keeping your clothes okay. on. Okay, artist as innovator, architect as puppet. <laughs> nice. Can I go next? Yes. Okay, um, to go back to this compact that architects have with society. Contracts, if... A compact, oh. a compact, a contract, I suppose, but an agreement, right? Oh, right, I understand. 125 Sorry, yes, years yes. ago, architects served the ruling class. Things changed dramatically. And then we seem to have gone through this wave, but I don't see this as a wave. I see it as a spiral. We are going to different levels, and the digital age has just accelerated that change, and we are not responding as enlightened members of a literate and skilled class. We're responding as vassals, 
You mean architects are not really yes. human? Not just architects. Not, no, no, not just architects. Anybody who goes through any kind of literacy or skill training or education in a broader sense is not responding as an agent of change. It's responding as a vassal as we did 125 years ago. So class, gender, sexuality, uh, ethnicity, all of those things are serving to subjugate rather than to elevate. I don't think I understand what you're saying. So we're all puppets. We are not challenging. We are not questioning. We're aligning so ourselves. So are you essentially happens. saying the same thing as the previous provocateur? I think I would like to. Uh, who is next? Final question slash provocation. Oh, second Hi. to last. Uh, just one question. So we've got a few architects in here, and I'm wondering how many employ indigenous population? Hackney and Tower Hamlets. How many employ or how many encourage um, education within... When you say indigenous... Indigenous. So do you mean people, people who, who, who live in the borough or people who were born in the borough? Born, live... I think this might be a chat with them afterwards because it's going to be tricky to go around and answer everybody. Perhaps we could just have a show of hands. Or perhaps anybody... Who's an employer of any sort in the borough? And who of you employs indigenous population... And would you are they are they people born in the borough? There you go. I think this might be a chat that's going to be easier to have afterwards rather than now. Is your point slash question? Just really look around. Yeah. So are you making the point that we are sitting in an echo chamber talking to each other? Exactly. And would you like to... Yeah, totes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I couldn't agree more. Yeah. Yeah. Go on. Oh, actually, very, it's a really interesting question. Just... Wait one second. I know you're desperate to respond to that, and I really understand, and I'm entirely... <laughs> wanting you to respond to it. However, I would very much like to hear the oh, final no. provoca pro provocation slash question, and then I'll put you first on the list. Um, I grew up one borough away. Does that count? And I employ myself. <laughs> it's got an H at the beginning as well. Um, my question is, uh, there's a kind of... Uh, we're, we're in a time and place at the moment uh, as a kind of generation, probably a... Kind of, I'm thinking of time here rather than, than um, type. And, and I can think back to my, my, the, the, my grandparents' generation, who were also architects, who were also gentrifying bits of London. But they were employed by local authorities to build housing. And um, to what extent can we learn from that generation uh, what our responsibilities might be? Because obviously we've been sucked into housing as a commodity and so on, but... You know, for years we've been suggesting that perhaps it should really be part of public health and, and so on. So, it, without reinventing the wheel, what can any of us remember that our 
I mean, it's a, at least a generation, if not two generations above us, isn't it? That, that maybe had some stories to tell us about this area and about, about gentrification and, and, and about housing. So That's are you saying, uh, is, it, is it something like, what can we learn from the, the time of the welfare state and the, you know, the social uh, contract? We, yeah, it, and because we can remember I mean, it. I know because we're still we, in the because time we of the talk, state. Exactly, because <laughs> we talk to that generation, and maybe yeah. it's one generation or, or two generations above us, but it's, it's in, within living memory. Yeah. What, are you, what can are you we responding learn? to this comment? Okay, not quite yet. Give me a second. I'm going to sum some things up. So it sounds to me like we have essentially two questions there. I'm going to summarise what everybody said. Because I think the first four questions about tactical urbanism and is the architect a puppet and the question of the contract between architects and society, do we have a duty of care to society? I think all of those questions come into what can architects practically do slash how can we advise policy? So I think it's about practical action and into that comes how can we advise policymakers? And the second thing that got everybody very exercised, of course, was we are sitting in an echo chamber. And that really sucks. Absolutely. No, I mean, everything I ever do is in an echo chamber. But I think Tarang might have something to say on how difficult, perhaps, it is to try and get outside of the echo chamber. So let's start with the question of the echo chamber. And then... After that, I'm going to follow up with the question of architects' duty of care slash are we puppets? And I'd like everybody on the panel to have a comment about that. And then I'll let a few audience members follow up with comments. Okay. So I just, I think the important thing is that, I mean, I, I work a lot at grassroots level and a lot in this area. You have to... It's also not good to put people who don't feel comfortable in certain situations in situations where they feel quite alienated and then makes them feel quite, not dumb really, but they, they really feel don't, don't feel comfortable. So, so in a way, if we're going to do that, then there needs to be a, a program or a strategy of how do you do that slowly and gently and, and in get your them experience, involved. Yeah, so at the moment, I'm, we're, we've been commissioned to do uh, an art project with the London Legacy Development Corporation for the Olympic Park. And we have women from Tower Hamlets and women from Newham from all walks of life, some who can't even speak English. And we're all kind of in one Set setting. Some are middle class women, some are, you know, can't speak, and so on. And we're all talking about the role of women and work and what that does for them and is that empowering or not. And a lot of those women that you're talking about who actually are, don't feel they have an agency are, at the beginning didn't say very much. But actually being just in the room to be part of the conversation, and, I, and we're also paying them to be there, so a lot of them just came to be paid. Um, and so on, but it doesn't matter, but now they're talking, now they're... So I think it's really... Um, I think if we're going to do that, then the setting needs to be developed. In terms of architects, that's what... That's the type of people I teach. So, you know, London Met is notorious for having very diverse students, and that's why I don't leave, because, you know, it's all... So, so I think... I don't, I don't employ anyone, so I, we're all... We're all directors. It's yeah. a horizontal structure. So you make a big so effort to get outside your echo chamber. Way yeah, more but it's a lot of work yeah, because you have to you have to set up and you have to have funding yeah. to do it because it isn't like you just set up a yeah. 
meeting, you have to run a program which is weeks long to, to do that. But um, do you want me to talk about the other one at the same time? or No, I think we should stick to this topic. I think that's going to be better. Cordula, or are you going to get... Oh, in that case, Charlotte and Janine, or, or perhaps Eleanor. Eleanor. Eleanor's looking very keen. It was something that Dinah said, which really reminded me of, yeah, another academic, I'm afraid. But she's this woman called Caroline Watkins, and she works at University of Westminster, and she does oral histories of people who've built stuff. And everything, everything from um, the, the Festival of Britain to social housing to the M25 to stuff like that, she's fabulous. Really, really check out her stuff. She lived in Lansdowne Drive, sort of like in the 70s, and was part of this sort of like radical lesbian carpenters co-op there. And because of what was happening, they at the time were part of Hackney DLO. So they were, this is the, where the connection comes in there, they were part of a very clear sort of like policy at the time to have local labour. And out of that was, you know, a whole, whole sort of like series of interventions. Like lots of people I know, including probably Paula, she probably built the staircase in your house or mended the staircase in your house. Incredible, incredible. You know, she was the one who sort of like kept an awful lot of Broadway market held together. But I remember having this conversation about her about how, how besieged I was feeling because I showed up in the 90s and there were all these sort of like artists who'd been around much longer than me and they were giving me a really hard time. And she just sat there and said, ah, ah, I remember when we were in the 70s and the artists came in and ah, they just didn't, they just wanted to, they just wanted to make art. Whereas we built stuff. And I did sort of say, yeah, but you had, you had the framework, you had the policy, you had the support from a political point in time which enabled you to do that. Have you got anything to say on the topic of, the, of, of moving outside the echo chamber? Oh, um, well, that was my one ad advice about moving outside the echo yeah. chamber is look back in history, there's some really cool people who actually go and talk and that's why oral history is really good because you just have to talk and listen to people and get them to tell their stories. Yeah, totally. That's a very good point. Um, would you like to comment on... I'd be interested, actually, when you're responding to this, to hear about who comes into your shop. And is that an opportunity to... Who is it an opportunity to speak to? Um, it's lots of different people who come into the shop. I mean, I think, you know, it's a bit depressing to call things echo chambers. You know, we're all parts of a community. We live here, we work here, we've got kids, or we haven't got kids, or... You know, I, d I, don't, I don't think... Um, I don't think it's necessarily an echo chamber. Um, I mean, we all like Negronis, maybe, or it's. Uh, it, I, I think there's there's lots of reasons that make us feel that we can't speak about things. What what things? Because do you feel we you feel can't maybe speak about? uncomfortable, or everybody's the same, or we're all middle class, or we might be privileged, or we've benefited and other people haven't, or whatever it is. But you know, that's when we're talking about guilt, isn't it? And you know, actually, it's much better to talk about things than to not talk about things. So this is a start. Do, do you and, feel guilty? Um, always, all the time about everything. That's my sort of mode of operation. <laughs> but uh, we won't go into that here. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think the, the shop's really great. It just, it just opens up. Um, all kinds of different conversations and otherwise I think it, uh, otherwise you can feel quite isolated and I think working as an artist sometimes is quite isolating the reason we work together is so that we have conversations and we can do things together 
and um, and then work having the shop opening up the studio allows us to talk about all kinds of things with people who might come in to buy cheese and we end up talking about art or the other way around. And if you had to define the qualities of the people who come in, do you think they're representative of the local communities? I've got absolutely no idea. You know, I think it's not it's not a good idea to. I, they're just all kinds of different people. Some, some people find out about Sitaro pasta from the internet and they come all the way across London. Some people pass by, some people know we're there. Some people are friends, some people we've never met before. It's all kinds of different people. And I think that it, it's important maybe as an artist to remember that you are part of a bigger community. As No, the artist community is a community, that it's not separate or... Yeah, I mean, the word community is extremely problematic. <laughs> and if we had another three hours, we could have a second question of, yeah. what is what community? Because <laughs> it's a bugger of a word. And do you feel guilty And it comes it? everywhere. Yeah, what does everybody feel guilty about? Uh, Charlotte, do you have a comment? Oh, no, I just wanted to say... Um, what's your name? Dejas. I was just going to say, did you actually work with um, the CDC... Ah, cool. Great, thank you. Um, <laughs> Cordula. Hang on, to get a grab. will you pass the microphone over in that direction so Cordula can have a comment on the question of the depressing I, idea of the echo chamber. Yeah, I, I agree with what um, she said and I wanted to ask you back what you thought the indigenous population of Hackney actually was. Why don't you pass the, pass, pass the microphone? I mean, I, I rather I totally, do agree with you. I totally that, agree with you as well. We are very similar. Exactly, that's, that's my point. Yeah. It's a questionable term. And I feel very much part of it all. We're talking about displacing people. So, you know... You've lumped, you've lumped them into a, into a group in talking about displacing, so why can't we talk about the group in this aspect? So I'm just really turning it on its head and just, you know, talking about the group that's being displaced. Yeah. Perhaps we could be including them in architecture, including these people in, um, in the learning, and, and that way they will be giving their stories to the architects and so then it would become a little bit less contentious. So another audience comment on this topic, uh, two audience comments on this topic. Would you mind passing the microphone in those directions? I mean, my feeling... I worked in community engagement for three years and I'm a huge advocate of participatory planning. Yeah. Um, it's great, but it does not stop developers from making profit and needing to make profit. Thank you. Could you pass it the, the microphone to the woman at the back? And somebody over here who's got their hand up. You're next. In a sentence, if you can, because we are so okay. close to the end, if not over it. Uh, my understanding is there's still quite a large proportion of social housing, especially in Tower Hamlets. There really and is. And those people are not being displaced. Um, so it's kind of the middle class, I guess, that are being displaced. Perhaps the people we like. Anyway, and uh, 
<laughs> but anyway, <laughs> I think that for me, anyway, this area needed gentrification, it needed investment. There was, so part of it. Investment and gentrification. Okay, are two it, need, it needed a certain amount of cleaning up, perhaps, a certain amount. My question is, how do you keep a balance? Because I think perhaps what everybody agrees is an area requires difference. Yeah? Well, I it, think it needs all the difference to make an interesting absolutely, area. Absolutely, I, I so couldn't really, agree more. The question should be, how do There's you a woman in the corner that? who's waiting to speak. If you could pass the microphone. It's just something quickly, just about gentrification. I've been thinking about it. To me, I've grown up in East London my whole life. Grown up with the premise of I was never allowed to go to Hackney. That was somewhere I wasn't ever allowed to go. So for me, gentrification is more people aren't scared to walk around in that environment. So now, people that I know that I went to school with, they're like, oh, yeah, we'll go to Hackney, we'll go to Hackney. But 15 years ago, no one would come here. So that's why I look at lots of places in London. I'm like, okay, that's gentrified now. People are happy to go walking around there at 10 at night. So, so you is, consider it to be a positive? I don't know if it's positive, because lots of my friends that are from Hackney can't move back, because they went to uni and can't move back. But it's the fact of when it becomes cool, and there's all these shops and these trendy coffee shops, people want to move there now. It's more appealing visually. That's what it is. It's more appealing visually. People want to come. So that's, for me, what gentrification is. That's a really interesting point, and I'm very pleased to hear it. It strikes me that what you're saying is that we're in a a position of extreme competition. The problem is lack of space. I think that's a problem in lots of parts of London. If you've got enough space for everything, then you will have everything. Interesting. I think this might be a conversation for afterwards because we are very much out of time and I apologise we're not going to have much of a chance but I would like all of our panellists to give me a sentence and I'm so sorry that this is only a sentence a sentence about what you can actually do what are your concrete actions and if you can bring into that at all are you a puppet, that would be good Charlotte, Janine Yes, of course you can go last. What could, Eleanor? Um, okay, maybe I have spent too much time on the policy side. I think we are the puppets of policy. We have been since the Urban Renaissance Yellow Book, since the sort of like whole um, national regeneration strategy. We are, we are the puppets of the sort of things which are coming through. However, I think there are some really positive um, alternatives to all the bad things about gentrification we've been saying, and those are the things the architects should be sort of like exploring. So alternative forms, community land trust, community self-build, all the stuff that's happening at St Anne's Hospital and Start. There's so many things that we can be doing to sort of like really encourage. There's stuff which is about resistance, and we haven't mentioned the fabulous publication Staying Put, which, if anybody's interested in it, download it from 
from um, uh, London's Tenants Federation and Just Space. They are the best. Um, and then finally, when we get tied up in policy, there's an awful lot of things which are like right to return, sort of like displacement sort of things, which are already there. We have a responsibility to understand the mechanisms, the mechanisms of policy that we should be able to sort of like exploit to improve things. Cordula? Yes, and we never got to the policy um, part of the discussion, yeah. did we? No, we but didn't. That I'm is sorry. The time has just gone One like... of the agencies we have as architects, and we're doing that at ZTD, based on also Dinah's um, role as a mayor's design advocate and the kind of research she's initiated. And, the, and we're basically writing policy or advising or providing a platform that policymakers can make more informed decisions. I'd like to finish on a... Twitter feed that um, Tina showed me last night is where this dreaded the poor door for mixed developments, you know, when you, the affordable homes have a different door, and, you know, how can we avoid that? So Andrew Buff, who's a conservative um, member of the GL planning committee, he suggested that, um, you know, very good suggestion, he said, we put, to avoid them, we should put into the planning condition that schemes should not segregate classes. It's as easy as that. Seems so, wise. Yeah. Tarange? Um, so I just, I, I, I just want to unravel tactical urbanism for one second because I don't think what you're talking about is tactical urbanism. It's, it's basically temporary use, throwing kind of lots of structures into the city, not really understanding critically what it's about. And, a lot, and there are lots of different notions of temporary use which can be disobedient, but in a lot of the time it's not, it's completely obedient and it's, it's to do with the way the cities want to generate, regenerate anyway. So I think we have to be very careful how we use the word tactical because tactical actually has political agency and those structures do not. Um, and then in terms of the, 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 I think we can not become puppets if we take on the digital understanding, not just to do kind of bream and all that crap, but actually to see how we could actually finance things through, um, you know, through crowdfunding or, or different digital platforms, how you can bring communities together through different platforms, how you can kind of create larger their social capital and so on. So, so I think there are methods, this is just the ones that I'm aware of because of my practice, but, but I think digital um, age actually does start to allow us not to align ourselves with the establishment and the top-down power. And I think we need to become innovative in that and not innovative in what panel colors we use or brick shapes. So, so I think that's what we have to um, we have to really do and become really innovative in practice. Thank you. Yeah. I highly recommend that as a topic of discussion for afterwards. Would you like to comment? Or your final summing up on the topic of what can be, what can be done in a concrete way and maybe what should be done is nothing. Everything's fine. I'm not sure. I hope you don't get the impression that we think everything is fine. Um, I think, thank you very much for fellow panellists. And um, I've, we've probably learned quite a lot tonight. Thank you. Oh, is that all you have to say? Oh, my goodness. That was extremely gracious. Janine, did you have a, a final 
comment to make no, on I any think, topic? No, I think as sort of summing up, I wouldn't feel comfortable to do that at all, actually, on this subject. Oh, well, well, I very much appreciated your participation. I think you are doing yourselves down. But nonetheless, I would like to thank the panel members very, very much. I've really enjoyed that. And thank you so much, the audience members, for your enthusiastic participation. I apologize to those of you I didn't get to. I think we should definitely stay and have another spritz and continue this conversation because it's an extremely important one, whether or not we think gentrification is a, a positive process or a negative process. I suggest it's neither. I suggest it's a process with many facets because the city itself is, of course, a very complex system. And if we could understand it, then we would have solved all the problems and we can't understand it in a simple way. So thank you, everybody, and enjoy the rest of the evening. Thanks for listening. For more on Negroni Talks, visit our website at www.fourthspace.co.uk where you can see all our past and upcoming events or find us and subscribe to the show in iTunes. Negroni Talks, mixing it in architecture.